Hey everybody, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Welcome those of you over in East Hall. Uh, glad you all are here. I really am. I haven't told you this in a while, so I need to remind you that um, I love you guys. And I love being a part of this church. I really hope you do too. All right. We have a theme for this year. It's transformed in 2018. And the idea is that you can be different in December than you are right now. A lot different. Two of the verses that we, have, uh, that we are going to be talking about this year are in Romans chapter 12, and this is what it says. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformed, 2018. Two weeks ago, I invited you to take uh, what we call the Next Steps Assessment. It's a little questionnaire online. It's about 30 questions to help you determine where you feel like you are spiritually and then give you a plan to where you might want to go spiritually. And about 1,200 of you have already filled out that, that assessment, and that's great. If you have not filled out that assessment, go ahead and do it. <laughs> you don't have to follow the plan, but at least you'll have one. Uh, based on the resources that we have, it's... Uh, it, it can't do any harm, and it's free. So go ahead, all right? Fill it out and see maybe what God wants you to do between now and December. Now, we have uh, taken these three weeks to go over the three remarkable claims of Christianity. One, you can know God. Two, because you know God, you can change. Three, because you know God and you can change, God can use you to change the world. We're going to talk about that third claim today. God can use you to change the world. All right, I'm going to have a theme song played right now, and I want you to raise your hand when you recognize this theme song. Good one. That was fast. Yeah. Mission Impossible. Yeah, I, that was a popular TV show when I was a kid. And now it's turned into a bevy of movies. If movies come in bevies, it, that's a bevy. There's a bunch of them. And the reason, I think, is because deep down inside of us, there is something that is drawn to missions, even if it's impossible. We feel like, ah, oh, why not us, right? There's something about it. Um, every great adventure movie, every great adventure story has a hero who's on a mission. When my kids were little, we used to go on what... I would call daddy's adventures. If it was a snowstorm outside, or even if it was just pouring outside, sometimes I would look at them and just say, hey, bundle up, you guys, we're going. Let's go on one of daddy's adventures. And we, they would have to follow me out like little ducklings. If we were walking in the woods and I saw a tree that had fallen over a ravine, if it was big enough and the ravine wasn't too deep, I would say, hey, daddy's adventures, we're going across that log. Let's see if we can make it. Now, my wife Karen wasn't always pleased with my judgment. But I wanted my kids to see the world like it was an adventure because I thought sometime God might be calling them to do something, that they might be pulled into mission. 
and what they were hardwired to do. And you almost have to squeeze it out of a kid, by the way, because kids know. And I get it. I get why you have to tell little kids, hey, don't climb on that. Hey, don't jump off of that. Hey, the, the clothes weren't on fire. Why did you hose down the closet? Uh, I get it. But every kid longs for adventure, wants adventure. Every person is hardwired for mission. I think uh, we all know that the world is not what it should be, that our world is pretty messed up. I mean, just this week with uh, the scandal with the U.S. gymnastics team, that is horrible stuff. Right? We know the world is messed up politically and economically and socially and racially and morally. Right? But I want you to know that the 21st century, however messed up we are, doesn't hold a candle to how messed up the world was in the first century. Because in the first century, things, it was crazy, slavery, rampant, prostitution, rampant. There was a temple in Ephesus that you could go to with a thousand temple prostitutes that you could rent for worship. Crazy how convoluted it was, infanticide, completely acceptable in the Roman Empire in the first century particularly with girls, because little boys were considered more valuable than little girls. So if you had too many girls, sometimes they would just put their baby, their, their little baby girl out on the stoop to be eaten by wild dogs or to die of exposure. Completely acceptable in the Roman Empire, right? Uh, crucifixion, torture, acceptable modes of punishment. How bad does a world have to be to take somebody like Jesus the, great, the best man who ever lived, and crucify him publicly. But then something happened in the first century that swept across the Roman Empire and changed the world from tip to tip. I just read a book called Unimaginable by a guy named Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. And the premise of the book is that Christianity has changed the world in the last 2,000 years to such a level so wide and so deep, and it's worked its way into the fabric of our world in such a way that to try to imagine the world today without Christian influence would be impossible. It is unimaginable. And this is my big epiphany for this week. You ready? Jesus didn't change the world. Doesn't that sound weird? It sounds weird for me to say in church. But Jesus didn't change the world. Jesus changed the disciples, and the disciples changed the world. If Jesus wanted to change the world, he could have done it with a snap of his finger, but he didn't. He changed the disciples, and those disciples changed the world. The Roman Empire from tip to tip. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, Matthias, I think it's James, the son of Alphaeus, Judas, the son of Simon. I think, I, I don't know if I named them all, but if you were going to try to find 12 people who could change the Roman Empire, none of those guys would be on the list. Not one. Here's a good question. Ready? If we were to take everybody in church right now, and we were to line you up in one big, long, single line, and we were to try to put you in order from somebody who is most likely to change the world to least likely to change the world, where would you put yourself and why? God used 12 
men who were the most unlikely, maybe in the whole Roman Empire, and they turned the world upside down. And by the time their lives were over, they had, the Roman Empire was beginning to change politically, economically, socially, racially, morally. And if God, the same God who did that with them, wants to do it with us, with you and with me. And the question is, how? How did God do it with them? How does God want to do it with us? Three keys. One, different identity, different purpose, different power. You've got to have a different identity. You've got to have a different purpose. You've got to have a different power. First, a different identity. It always starts with identity, by the way. Uh, in the book of Acts, uh, Peter and John are preaching. Uh, this is after Jesus' resurrection. And they're telling people that Jesus rose from the dead. And the authorities are getting pretty upset about it. They get miffed about the whole thing. And so they call them in to interrogate them. And this is the way it goes in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that last part. They recognized they had been with Jesus. Peter and John were uneducated fishermen, but they weren't acting like uneducated fishermen. They were acting like they were somebody else. I told you last week that identity is, you, you form your identity because you, you base it on something that tells you who you are, what you are, and how you should feel about you. That's your identity. And we can base our identity on all kinds of things. You can base your, you can have uh, your job, answer those questions for you. This is who you are, what you are, how you should feel about you. You can use your family. You can use your children. You can use your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You can use your physical attractiveness. You can use your athletic ability. You can use the size of your house or the, the style of your car or the church that you pastor. I put that last one in for me. You can use anything to determine who you are, what you are, how you should feel about you, right? The disciples, at least Peter and John, were fishermen. So the authorities thought, oh, they're fishermen. They would base their identity maybe on that. But then they recognized they had been with Jesus. Last week I told you that there was, there's only one face that's important to determine who you are, what you are, and how you should feel about you, and that's the face of God. And someday you'll stand before God. We had two funerals at our church this past week. Two wonderful young women who passed away this past week. Everybody's going to have a funeral. You're going to have a funeral. It may seem like it's going to be a long way off, but someday all of us will have a funeral. And at your funeral, when people are gathering to talk about you, you're going to be standing before God, and you will have nothing. You won't have your car, your house, your athletic ability, your accomplishments, your job, your, what people think about you. Nothing like that will travel with you. If you were standing in line in, in heaven waiting to see God, and you were standing next to LeBron James, Bill Gates, and Oprah Winfrey, you would not know who they are because they would have nothing that they had here. And you will stand before God, and God, the only one who really matters, will then tell you who you are, what you are, 
and how you should feel about you. And every religion in the world basically gives you a thousand things that you need to change before that day. But Christianity comes along and it says that Jesus made two changes, just two changes. What Jesus came to do was change what God sees when he looks at you on that day and what you see when you look at the face of God on that day. And that changes everything about you. And I went through it last week, and I'm not sure I made it clear enough, so let me just take one more shot at it. One of my favorite all-time verses is 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is what it says. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what, that's what it says. God made Jesus to be sin for me. That means that God, that Jesus took my sin on himself and became me when he went to the cross. So that when I put myself in Jesus, I become the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus. So on that day, for me, because I have claimed Jesus by faith, when God looks at me, he will see the goodness of Jesus. And when I look at God's face, I will look at the delight of someone looking at his son. And, and the Bible tells you how you can get that. If you don't know that you have that, this is the way you get it. You go to God and you say, God, that's what I want. That's what I want. As much as I understand it, I believe that Jesus went to the cross for me, and he took my sin on him, and I want to exchange places with him so that when you look at me, you see the goodness of Jesus, and you accept me. And so I want Jesus to be my Savior. I want Jesus to be my Lord. That's it. That's what happened to the disciples. The first thing that happens has to be a, a completely different identity if God's going to use you to change the world. The second thing is a different purpose because purpose should be connected to identity. Um, here's a question. Why do you do what you do? Why do you work where you work? If you belong to a club, why do you belong to that club? Why do you live in the neighborhood you live in? Why do you do what you do? I, I just I read a book called um, Deep Undercover by a guy named Jack Barsky. And Jack Barsky, was a, he was a, a Soviet spy. He was a KGB agent back in the Cold War. And he came to the United States to live as a spy. And he lived in New York City. And the whole story is, you know, then at the very end of this book, he comes to Christ, which is why I was reading the book. But it was fascinating because everything he did when he was a spy was connected with him being a spy. He got a job at the insurance company where he worked because that's where he wanted to work so that he could accomplish what he wanted to accomplish as a spy. If he joined a club, it was because of how it would work out with his identity and being a KGB agent. The people that he associated with, the people he became friends with, everything in his life had a purpose, and it was connected to his identity. It's what happened in the first century, that Jesus comes and he changes the identity of these 12 guys, and then they become different than anybody else in the world because of that identity. They became like Jesus, and this is what I mean when I say they became different than anybody, than everybody else in the world. 
Everybody in the world is built with the same kind of, um, of pull. There are two directions. There's a pull kind of inward. It's, it's, it's pulling things toward yourself. It's being self-centered, or you can be other-centered. But every person is born self-centered. I was watching my, uh, my grandson, who's a little over two years old, uh, just like two days ago. And my son and I were sitting next to each other on the couch, and we were just watching him, and he has a one-year-old little sister. And my grandson had a toy in his hand. And he was perfectly happy with the toy, and he looked over at his sister, and his sister was going after another toy. And before she, because she's slow right now. So she was going after the toy, and he, he looked at it, and he, and he reached out, and he grabbed it right before she could get to it. And now he had two toys. But he couldn't play with this one now because this hand is kind of with, full with another toy. So he's got these two toys. And, he's still, and then he looks over and she's going after a third toy. And he like <laughs> grabs it. Right? Why? He, he can't do anything with the three toys now. That is, that, that is human nature. Right? We, we go after everything with what's in it for me because everything, we pull everything in toward us. That's a, a your life for mine mentality. And I see it in marriages, by the way. When somebody says, you know what, this isn't working out for me. What they say, what they're saying is, listen, I married this person because I thought that it was going to benefit me. And it's not benefiting me, so now I'm done with it. Because this is the, this is the direction of my life is what's in it for me, your life for me. right? And then these 12 disciples come in and they're, they're going to be like Jesus. They're going to be about good news, and they're going to be good news. And when you say you're, about, you're, you're following Jesus and you're going to be like Jesus, that means that's a different movement. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus comes to change that direction and say, my life for yours. And all of a sudden, you become other-centered. So what happened to the disciples, I'm going to show this graphic up. You've got all these people looking the same, all these people, wherever they are, the same. And then all of a sudden the disciples come in, but they're different. And they're saying, my life for yours. And they, wherever they work, wherever they live, wherever they go, whatever club they're a part of, they begin to impact other people. And it grows and it spreads. And that's what happened in the first century. Because they had a different identity. Because they had a different purpose. Why do you do what you do. And then finally, they had a different power, a different power. Let me show you this verse in um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. This is after the resurrection, and he's going to talk to the disciples one last time. And this is what he says to them in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus says you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If you're a follower of Christ, that doesn't mean that you just follow his teachings. It means that you get the Holy Spirit, which is Christ's Spirit, inside of you, and that gives you a power. Right? And that's what happened to the disciples. And that power played itself out in three ways for the disciples. It played itself out first by making them fearless instead of fearful. They became fearless instead of fearful. Acts chapter 4, again, after the, these authorities drag him in because they're preaching that Jesus is resurrected, and they want to try to stop them from doing it, so they threaten them. This is verse 17. It says, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That was astonishing to the authorities. They thought they were going to threaten these guys. Here they had power, they were going to threaten them, and that they would fold and go, okay, okay. Why didn't it work? We go back to identity. If I know what your identity is based on, then I can have a threat. I can threaten you in a way that will make you stop doing almost anything. But if your identity is based on something I can't touch, if your identity is based on something that no one can touch, if there's something out there that's beyond me that will tell you who you are, what you are, how you should feel about you, well, then you become fearless. And this is what the disciples were basing everything on. This is Romans chapter 8. Paul is speaking. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's a question. If you were not afraid of anything, what would you do, what could you do for Jesus? If you were not afraid of anything, what would you do, what could you do for Jesus at work, in your neighborhood, at school, with your friends, with your family? If you weren't afraid of anything, how much could you change your world? That was the first thing with the disciples. That the power that they had made them fearless and not fearful. The second thing with the disciples is that they went under, not over. And what I mean by that is that they, um, they didn't change the world with power. They changed the world with love. And that, that sounds like a hippie thing. But I want you to just think about that for a minute. That never happens. The only time the world has ever been changed by love is right is then, and it's been changed for 2,000 years. Nobody uses love. Everybody uses power. If you want to change, think of our political system, Republicans, Democrats. Why do they want more, more of their party in power in the House, in the Senate, in the presidency? Because then if you have power, then you can change what you want to change. But the disciples had no power. They didn't have education. They didn't have resources. They didn't have money. What they did was they served people. And they didn't just serve, they didn't serve the rich and the powerful in order to try to get influence. They served the poor and the destitute. Uh, there's a great passage in Matthew chapter 25 that uh, Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about the end of the age, the end of time, and he's talking about himself as the king and what he will do. And it never struck me before this, but this is what he says. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. (laughs) That is a terrible strategy to change the world. How are you ever going to change the Roman Empire, the powerful Roman Empire that was deeply corrupt with slavery and infanticide and prostitution and racism and sexism and all of that? How are you going to change that? This is what this was the strategy. Clothe the naked, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, go visit those in prison, take care of the sick, minister to the poor. And that's what the disciples did. And the followers of Christ began to do that, and the Roman Empire changed from tip to tip. And that's the way we're going to do it. That's why our church is involved with ministries down in the city. It's why we are involved with Micah 6-8 weekends, where we give the money to different things. It's why throughout this year, you're going to hear more about orphanages. You're going to hear more about feeding people. You're going to hear more about adoption. You're going to hear more about foster care, because if you are going to change your part of the world this year, you're going to have to find someone to serve, because that's the way Jesus changed the world. That's the way the disciples changed the world. So between now and December, we're going to find a place for you to serve someone who is hurting more than you are hurting, because that's the way the world was changed, and that's the way the world would change now. The last thing the disciples did is they they didn't do it alone. They did it together. They did it together. This is John chapter 17. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's praying a last prayer over the disciples. Uh, But this is what he says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that means he's actually praying for us because we are people who have believed because of the disciples that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. One of the things that's, that uh, is the secret to the church and the power of the church is unity. Not uniformity, that's something else. Uniformity means that everyone is the same. Everyone looks the same, is the same. But unity is diversity connected together by purpose and identity. That means the the church of Jesus Christ has always been big into diversity, different types of people, different socioeconomic places, different ethnicity, different gifts. But somehow we come together with a unity, and in that unity, there is power. The best basketball team I was ever a part of was the basketball team that uh, I was a part of when I was a senior in high school. We won the state championship in Florida. We did it with our five starters could not have been more different. It was Pernell Tukes, Jake Campbell, Jimmy Farrell, Greg Harrell, and myself. Different gifts, different abilities. We had a coach that somehow 
molded us together so that for a moment in time, we were the best basketball team in the entire state of Florida. Diversity and unity gives power. Here's the thing. Three remarkable claims. You can know God. You can know God. And because you can know God, you can change. And because you can know God and you can change, God can use you to change the world. And he will do it the same way he did it with the disciples who changed the Roman Empire from tip to tip. It will be a different identity. You need to have a different purpose. And you need to have a different power. And we will do it together this year, 2018, we are on mission to be Jesus, to be like him, to do what he wants us to do, to be what he has called us to be. Transformed, 2018. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we come to you, and I am so grateful. I don't know if I ever really thought of it until this weekend, that you could have changed the world with a snap of your fingers, and instead, you chose to change people like us and then give us the task, give us the power and the purpose of changing this, your world, into what you want, us, want it to be. Lord, I pray that you will make us fearless instead of fearful, that you will help us to go out in love and not power. And I pray that you would help us do it together and not alone. Thanks for this church. Thanks for the calling that you've given us and for this mission. We pray that this year will be a year like none other and that we will all be transformed in 2018. We pray this in your blessed name.